Welcome to Office Hours, a podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marcia Chatlin, and the concept is simple. Each week, one professor, me, and one student, lots of conversation. Office Hours, for the things we don't talk about in class. Today on the podcast, I talked to recent college graduate Olivia Smith of Seattle University about the last few weeks of her college career. Hello, Olivia. Hi. How are you? I am excellent. A little sweaty. <laughs> it's hot here yes. in D.C. And Welcome to the not Northwest. No, and I don't understand like <laughs> Heat? the idea that like we're still supposed to wear sh- suits. The and men like, are fully suited and, like, in this environment. Pants and like I just don't like I don't get yeah. like if we all know it's hot, let's just all come to a consensus <laughs> that we should not wear long clothes. Gosh, you're such an organizer. But I mean, <laughs> and so how are you liking being in DC? Have you been here in the summer before? Not to this extent. Like you know, like mm-hmm. small. Like I don't know. I think programs where you come for a week and do the monuments at night and all those mm-hmm. kinds of things, but not like living in DC. What's weird being here, considering you're so, so northwest? Yeah. Not weird, but beautiful. Like, there are literally brown people everywhere. Oh, yeah, that's yes. right. You didn't know that? Yes, they are. Like, from all over the world. And, like, working, like, doing all working sorts of stuff. in CVS and at, at the public defender service in charge of this, in charge of that. Like, literally brown faces everywhere. So this is the, so this is the thing um, about the Pacific Northwest. I didn't go for the first time until, like, a few years ago. Okay, okay. And it's so incredibly beautiful. So yeah. driving on the highway, it's like right. looking at a postcard. Right, yeah. And then there are no black people. No, no. And so you feel very much you yeah. there. Um, I went to Eugene and I went to Portland. Eugene, Oregon. Yeah. And I went to Salem, Oregon. And I, we, we drove from Vancouver down and then back up. Okay. And I was like, wow, I haven't seen black people in like a day yeah. or two days. Yeah. You really have to search it out. And it's fascinating because, um, you know, there's a... Um, there's a lot I can say about the Northwest, but one of the things I like to teach in my civil rights class is the um, the idea that um, the Pacific Northwest doesn't have a civil rights history because they didn't need to have one mm, because it's because they were just progressive because they're always progressive yeah. or liberal. And so I love teaching this piece um, by a guy named Dwayne Mack about activism in Spokane yeah. and this idea of Gonzaga students being in solidarity with the civil rights movement, even in the absence of a critical mass of black people. And I think that that's why the foolishness of Rachel Dolezal's story was so upsetting, because that's the least interesting thing about the Spokane NAACP. There's actually some really good stuff. Um, But that is not why I called you onto the podcast. I wanted to interview you because... I felt like I was part of your senior year, even though I don't teach at Seattle University, because um, due to the beauty of Facebook, I got to see some of the things that were happening on your campus, including essentially the occupation of the administration building. So why don't we start a few weeks before Before that? that. Tell us a little bit about Seattle U. Yeah, Seattle University is a small Jesuit school, maybe like... Kind of like this one? Yeah, kind of like Maybe like 5,000 undergrad Mm -hmm. students. Um, and I was there for four years on a Fulbright scholarship, and my first year was decent. And so was it a school that—how did you feel about going to a school that was yeah. close to home? Yeah, I really, really wanted to leave Seattle initially. Yeah. I like, was like, I'm not going to be here, but when you tell God this is not what I'm going to do, God is like, this is exactly <laughs> what you are going to do. So I ended up staying in Seattle, and it was really—I mean, the scholarship that I had was the reason why I was there, because otherwise I wouldn't have been at a small private Jesuit school that cost $50,000 a year. Um, and so Seattle University is very, like— 
social justice driven, at least in their mission. Um, and that's another thing that attracted me. It was between Seattle U and Gonzaga, and I felt like, well, Seattle U like, says all this really cool stuff. I look at their website. Like, when you go to the orientation, it's so beautiful. And, like, they're like, social justice this and that. And so that was really, that's what really caught my attention. Um, only to arrive and realize that, you know, black folks, again, were, like, just tokenized. Um, that social justice was not really what they wanted to I mean, they like the language. It looks pretty. It sounds nice. Um, it aligns with a lot of what Father Rupe says, um, but it's not really, like, who the, what they've really embodied. Um, and so that's what I found. It took me three years to figure that out. So let me talk—let's talk about this a little yeah. bit, because I think yeah. that this is the thing that— um, when people invite me to speak and they're like, why are people, why are students of color so mad? I'm like, yeah. well, let me enumerate some points. Yeah. But the first one that I always turn to is there is this interesting kind of like setup yeah. that I think it feels for a lot of students of color when they look at the brochures, yeah. when they hear the rhetoric, when they hear about the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And then there's a moment where you feel a little embarrassed that you ever believed it, yeah. that you can be kind of like the most woke person in the mm-hmm. world. And you want to believe that you can be part of a college community yep. where you are a member of it. And then it goes horribly mm-hmm. wrong. Or it's not even have to be horribly wrong, but you start to feel like, right. oh, wait a second, I yeah. just fell for something. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that embarrassment and that shame mm-hmm. can be very powerful, but no one ever talks about it in yeah. that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I was very successful at Seattle University mm-hmm. for the first three years, and I won the Truman, and so all the president, of course, loves you and is inviting you to speak and inviting you to do this and inviting you to do that. Um but you can't deny the experiences of your counterparts. Um, and I think that's what's embarrassing. Like realizing that you've been living or engaging in this specific way while there are other folks, your friends, like your roommates that are living an entirely different experience in, in the same place. In the sense that they're not being celebrated. And exactly, not being celebrated, not being centered, told they're too ghetto or too urban or they'll never be successful because of the way they talk or like, you know, like just just really um, vile things to students of color when you're not put in, um, like if you're not if you're not the right kind of brown person. Tell me more about this because yeah. again, you're saying things that I know, but no yeah. one ever talks yeah. about. Yeah, because there is a way where, when you are a talented person of color and talented, not because of what you have to offer, right. what other people have deemed talented. Yeah, exactly. Um, there is a way that you get all of this access, yeah. and it is very uneasy access. And even when you're hostile, because yeah. that's the thing that I found yeah. in college, I wasn't particularly like compliant. I was yeah. an extremely hostile person, but that was marked as talented right. and valuable. Yeah. And then the co-optation begins. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, meanwhile, your friends are looking at yeah. you like, well... Well, there are several of us in this um, in the scholarship, and one uh, one of my... Like, someone I look up to, her name is Fiza Mohammed, um, like woke beyond woke really um it's really focused on like healing um in particular and what what manifested this to me we had like a every year 300 students come and apply for this scholarship that we have and nine people get it so 300 students it's a big like admissions day event really and so they asked me to speak and I was like okay great like sure I'll say something talking with my roommates and whatnot and we're like yo we're gonna disrupt this we're just gonna we're just gonna basically say to the 300 students that like Seattle U is is not what it says it is not that it can't change, but that this is this is what's happening. It won't divest. It won't recognize this. It won't recognize this. It won't recognize this. It won't recognize it. Like, things like that. So we gave the speech, um, and the whole room was, of course, like, quiet, like, yo, what's happening? Using Father Rupe's words, literally took his words and, like, put them into modern text and relevant to Seattle University. Um, then my roommates, one, Fiz Muhammad, came up and asked a question. There's three of us. 
Um, and like it wasn't necessarily question time for us. It was question time for the students. But when you're taking space, you literally take space. So we were taking space. Um, and the, the, the woman who's the dean who you'll later find out we, act, we were asking for her resignation, she was like, well, what Olivia Smith just did on stage was, like, appropriate and, like, the right space and the right time. And, like, she, you know, she, she, had, she had an opportunity. And what you're doing right now is disruptive, basically, and aggressive. Wait, what, even though wait, we were to connected your friend? To my friend. Oh, I just try, got what happened. Trying to... Very, isolate the two incidences and say this is what it's okay to do this kind of activism but what you're doing over here is not correct even though we were very much in cahoots and doing it together um, so that was when it became very very clear to me that like there's this one type of like like you said like type of brown person that can be hostile or aggressive or to the point that they'll accept well you know and then the other one they, they won't I've also I go to a lot of graduation events and it seems like graduation talks from yeah. students are just big reads now. Yeah. And it's weird. Like, and, I, and, of course, like, I thought I invented yeah. that because I pulled a stunt like that at an event But when I was in college. But, like, you go to a graduation event, and the student just reads the yeah. institution, reads, like, whatever. Yeah. And then they sit down, yeah. and the alumni are like, what just happened? And the students are like, yes. But it's a weird kind yeah. of, like, ritualizing um, a kind of like um, what am I trying to say? Like punishment. Like yeah. you will sit here and learn Thanks. the truth, mm-hmm. but then you will be able to disperse. Yeah. Um, is that what college is like now? Just people just reading. People just. Read. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, just though? like just like I'm gonna just cut through it. Yeah. I mean, I guess in some ways because we don't. I mean, we're not really doing the real... It's not always really doing the real work. We're just trying to, like, get through, get through, get through. So, like, the opportunities that we have, we have to capitalize on them. That's fascinating. So so you are changing your relationship to the institution yeah. through your years. And then what happened at Seattle University? Yeah. I mean, students have been organizing around what we occupied, or the sit-in. We're calling it a sit-in, um... There was some discussion within our group how the term occupation can be very colonialistic. Um, so, but there had been people organizing around the sit-in and around the resignation of this dean for ten, like ten and years. What ago. was the grievance with this particular dean? Yeah. Um, while all of Seattle University has internalized white supremacy that it needs to deal with, in this particular college, the Matteo Ricci College, which was modeled after elite colleges, which we know are not set up for brown folks. Like brown folks were never meant to really go to Harvard or Yale. Um, it's hyper-concentrated in this particular college called Matteo Ritchie College, where this dean has been the dean um, for a very long time and has spent 40 years at Seattle University. Um, she's been she's known to say like very vile things to students of color, been in meetings with students of color and throwing paper um, or, or things in her office. Um, she has infringed upon um, academic freedom for professors. So, for example, we have one professor who is a person of color teaching poverty in America and told not to talk about race. Um, and none of these, none of the faculty in this particular college are tenured. So, like, as, you're, as we were, like, learning about what was going on, people were, like, bringing up their grievances. They're like, you know, like, there's, there's something not right. Like, it doesn't, it makes sense that, right, the one teacher that's not down, the one dean that's not down for unionization is also um, perpetuating all of these systems in the college. And so how does that then interface with the organizing, yeah. this particular 
dean and the decision to do the sit-in in the president's office yeah. or the administrative was, office. Yeah, it was in, in her um, college's office. So I'm not in the actual college, but all my three of my roommates were in that college. Um, and as just like a roommate, I was kind of implicated and as like a friend and as someone who cares, right, because we believe that the resignation of this dean is going to be- benefit everyone. When you f- center marginalized communities, everyone benefits. Like, that's... So period. what was the first yeah. step? The first, so there was the first step was recognizing that there was a problem. So right, like I think institutions are set up great to like kind of push you push you through. You realize there's a problem, but then you're graduating, so then you just move on. Um, so I know a lot of students in that particular college spend a lot of time like saying, "Yo, this is what's going on. Yo, this is what's going on." Like I thought I was the only one. No, you're not. Like this is also going on. So it started with a lot of like just truth telling. Um, and then it was like, okay, what can we do about this? And realizing that students 10 years ago have been, were trying to do the exact same thing. Like we found, or we were given emails of students doing like the, saying the exact same thing 10 years ago to the provost and to the president. I think this is interesting because I always feel like history is your greatest tool for yeah, organizing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but this is something that sometimes students miss yeah. of how they are ins- they're inserted in something that has been happening mm-hmm. for a very mm-hmm. long time and drawing, you know, strategies or yeah. thoughts about the situation from how people in the past were yeah. unable mm-hmm. to do this. And so the dean's resignation was very important mm-hmm. to a group of students. Yeah. And how do you then contend with the students who, like, don't, don't get yeah. what you're doing? Because you know yeah. the playbook, right? Yeah. Why are you targeting one person? Mm-hmm. How can one person be responsible for all these things that are yeah. structural? And, you know, I think that what starts to happen is people are then, a grievance is made, and it's like, well, you can't bully a person, right? right? Yeah, or yeah. there are channels for this, mm-hmm. right? So exactly. you've heard all of this all stuff. All of it, all of it. And so how do you kind of navigate yeah. that language? Yeah. Um, we believe that Dean Kelly was a gatekeeper from making, from, from not, she wasn't allowing, she wasn't going to be a conduit for change. I mean, given tons and tons of opportunities. And when you're teaching six or 18 and 19 year olds right like who are very vulnerable who are soaking up everything you're saying because they're in this great institution supposedly um that's giving them all this knowledge um that's really harmful so we believe that while we support dean kelly dean kelly's healing um she cannot continue to be harmful as she has been and so how long did it take before you made the decision to do the sit-in oh gosh I wasn't there at the... I remember my roommate coming up to me saying, like, yo, Liv, we're about to do a sit-in. I need you to be there. And I was like, I'm down. Can I have five minutes? (laughs) You you didn't have five minutes. I mean, as soon as she said it to me... Or is that always your answer? Yeah, kind of. (laughs) I mean, I knew knew exactly what, you know, I knew what had been transpiring. I don't know at what point um, some of the main organizers decided that this is what they were going to do. But as soon as my friend said, yo, we're going to do a sit-in, Liv, I need you to be there, I said, easy, Absolutely. Of course. And had you ever participated in a sit-in before? Never. I think I had held a megaphone one other time in relation to the Mizzou uh, protest. We showed solidarity at our campus. But other than that, like, I feel like I'm very much a baby organizer, still, like, trying to soak up a lot of wisdom and understanding. And so I always wonder what something is like the first day. Yeah. So I know what the last day was like for you. But the first day you show up in the office, how were you feeling? Yeah. The first day was beautiful. We had, like, set up a time for everyone to meet. Um, 
and like we didn't actually start we didn't start right on time right on time we were feeling like a little anxious but we had music and we were like yo this is our timeline like let's take time let's breathe let's make sure <clears throat> all of our people are here like let's get together um, so we did that. We gathered around like this quad space, um, and folks were like, "Say, this is why we're here. This is this is what we believe, um, et cetera, et cetera." And we kind of marched around campus, and literally, we then just walked into the office and said, "All right, everyone, like, let's get comfortable." And so, how many students participated in that initial? I mean, there had to be a, at least fifty to sixty students. You got fifty to sixty people I, yeah, to do this to with walk, you? Yeah, to, to walk in on the first day, and it was it was magical. I mean, like, it was really we transformed the space into something that was going to be healing and celebratory of, like, our identities um, and our How ancestors. How did you do that? <sighs> My friend Fizza Mohammed is literally just, like, just knows. I think one, one white professor that I have said to us before we began, like, trust your instincts, trust your body, to women of color, right? Because it was women of color, queer folks, and folks with disability leading the coalition. Um, and so, like, we have such a rich ancestry of organizers and resistance. Like, if we just listen to our bodies, it's so easy. I had, like, white friends say to me, yo, I'm so glad you guys were in the movement because all of my instincts were wrong, mm. um, which was, like, super powerful just to be able to, like, this is what my body feels. I mean, a lot of conversations started like that when we were, like, planning and strategizing, like, this is what my body feels. This is what I think. This is, like, X, Y, and Z. And it made a lot of sense um, for the space. But the first day was incredible, and... I mean, we actually didn't even plan to stay 24 days. We got there on a Wednesday and had actually thought we were just going to leave on Friday. But as things transpired, we were like, no, we can't leave. we got to stay. And so let's talk about the actual, like, logistics. Yeah, yeah. So you are planning a two-day sit-in, yeah, uh-huh. and you're there for 24. Yep. <laughs> so at some point, I'm sure someone whose office this yeah. is was like, hey, folks, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hello, you're in, you're in our, in our yep. space, you've reclaimed it. How are we going to figure this out? So yeah. what were the different, like, negotiation yeah. moments or, how, you know, were you threatened with the, by the police yeah. or anything like that? We weren't threatened by the police, um, at least not initially. And as, as far as we know, um, we have learned a little. I mean, there's things that, that, were, that were unknowns to us um, that were kind of uncovered as we were going on. But they literally came and, like, took the computers and office supplies out of the office. It was very petty. It looked really silly, like, to come and, like, we're taking our computers. And we're like, we'll take your computers then. They took their dish soap as well and their coffee pot. Um, so, I mean, it, that, that was very amusing. Um, and so we said that business can't go on as usual, right? Because if business goes on as usual, then we're just going to be placated and the school is going to make sure we're safe and happy and no one dies and then continue to do what they're doing. So we said business in this office cannot go on as usual. Um, we did run against some tensions in terms of, like, there are work-study students and, like, how are they going to get their hours, X, Y, and Z. And we said we're down for work-study students to come and, like, use this space. They didn't come. Um, there were also professors who supported us, who had offices in that, like, main office, and they continued to use their office. But for the dean um, and Jody Dean, Jody Dean Kelly, and there's another, Carol Kelly, to use their offices as business usual was not was not an option for us. And so when did you first get the first kind of gesture toward, from the university yeah. to say something to you, too? Um, I mean... One thing I want to point out that I think is important and interesting and like an overall analysis is that Seattle University is like all the top administrators are white folks, but all of the um, student development are people of color, literally all of them. And the provost was also a man of color, a gay, a gay man of color. Um, 
And so it was interesting to feel like we were competing or like we were being sent like like folks that looked like us in order to like play oh, to like oh they sent them yeah. in yeah so like the the um, student development very nice people that I have relationships outside of um, this particular occupation coming into the office and of course like is everything okay is everything all right um, and us just trying to understand like what dynamics are at play. Um, and how authentic or non-authentic or, I mean, they're still a part of the institution, right? But they are also people of color, um, women of color. as And so it was it was interesting to have them, like, come and, like, check in on us, but also feel like, yo, we can't we can't really trust you because we, we, have a, we have a bigger goal. And how do you think this was playing out within the larger student body? Yeah. Oh, it was it was an email battle for sure. So were people just being racist on social media? Like, was Yik Yak involved? Because anytime no, something racist happens, Yik Yak usually gets involved. At least not as far as I was, con- I, I knew Yik Yak wasn't involved. That is like a fur. That's my I didn't, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> but what was the kind of what was the tone of students yeah. who were not in the building? Yeah. As far as our first press conference went, the tone was very much, "Wait, what's going on? What's happening?" Um, and so we were trying to be very intentional about also doing teach-ins. Mm-hmm. So during the first week, um, we let classes and people come in, and they could literally just sit and learn and be in the space and understand, like, what we're doing and why we're doing it. We thought that was really important. Um, and I think that the tone was mixed. So in the beginning, the president sent the first email saying, yada, 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 there's a, there's a sit-in, we're going to, like, work together and be collaborative. Um, luckily, we had friends on student government who had access to, to like, a the full undergrad listserv so we could send an email back and say this is what we want this is, these are our demands this is when they should be met by etc cetera, etc cetera. and what were the demands outside of the resignation of the dean yeah uh, curriculum review so for example this partic- every college has a curriculum review college like universities and then the colleges have curriculum reviews within the university um, if I remember correctly Matteo Ritchie had an internal curriculum review in 1991 and has never had an external curriculum review which makes no sense because every college is accountable to a curriculum review every seven years. Interesting. And so how did you get that piece of information? I don't know where that bubbled up from. Um, I think, again, due to the organizing that was happening so long ago, like these are things that people had already brought to the administration's attention. Um, and like alumni were so vital in like handing over documents and history and wisdom on like what they went through. Um, one alumni in particular uh, a woman of color came in and like she started crying. She's like, "Yo, this is. I never thought this space could feel like this for me," um, and that was really moving. Um, as a graduate of Mizzou, I, yeah. I feel you on that yeah. one. Yeah. I can relate to those feelings. Um, so this is happening. Are yeah. you going to class? Yeah. So the first week, um, the first week was. I mean, of course, you never want to be. You never want to, like, people think, pro, like, you know, like, we just get up and, like, yes, we want to, like, protest and spend, it's I mean, like, work. it's work. So I, I really want an organizer to write a book about, like, who takes care of the cat, our cat was really neglected, who waters the plants and, like, yeah. takes out the trash, because, like, those are some of the things we're like, whoa, after the first week. So the first week, I think I missed class probably Wednesday and, and missed work, and, and that, that was fine, right? Like, it, you can... You can take one or two days here or there. And then it got real because, like, we have to graduate still from this institution. Like, people still have to go to work. People still have families. Um, people have to sleep, eat, like, take care of themselves and, like, trying to do all this um, and being so new to it. 
Um, but one thing I think we were really lucky, people were very intentional about, like, trying to figure it out. Um, so the first the first weekend, um, we realized that the way we were going about it, it just wasn't working. Like, we had created a great, like, he, like it looked great, but it wasn't actually a place where you could, like, do homework or, like, actually, like, people were leaving the space to, to decompress instead of coming to it. So we were, like... As organizers and like baby organizers, trying to figure out like, okay, 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 we need to completely reevaluate um, and take a better assessment, like how to still like live um, and organize at the same time. I see why a lot of the Black Panthers like left their day jobs and just organized because it's hard to do both. And so while this is happening, I know I'm watching your yeah. Facebook, your your Periscope or whatever, yeah. and I'm enjoying what I'm watching. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure there are people in your life, or maybe yeah. there aren't, yeah. who like maybe not understand what yeah. you're doing. Yeah. Um, so how did you talk to people outside of that, whether yeah. it's family members or friends or yeah. people who maybe were not on board with your choice? I mean, the biggest question was like, why? Why are you asking for her resignation? Like you said, like that's too much. Like there. So are these are people in your personal yeah. life. Yeah, in my personal life, uh-huh. and who, who maybe and maybe not asking, um, in a, an accusatory way, but just like generally didn't know um and I, I there are very few of them because i think i've just gotten very bored with people who don't have a social analysis if you're not like contributing to my liberation then like what are we talking about um but i think to to those to those folks it was it was like i mean different answers for different folks right because different people can understand different things um and so i was a pastor for this past year at a church called valley and mountain um, which is very like very intentional um, and believes in like deep listening, creative liberation, um, like co-creating communities. But of course, there are folks who would come to church and say, "Oh, like you're doing this. Like, what does this mean?" Like, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I basically just said, "Like, what's been happening at Seattle University um, is that we've been tricked." And it, 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 Seattle University gave us a great platform because they said in their mission, "We want to educate the whole person, right, for a more just or for a just and humane world." And so basically we would say Seattle University told us that this is what they were going to do and this is not what they're doing. Instead, they're doing X, Y, and Z. And so we're holding our school accountable. And that was, some, that was easy for people to understand. And so for other organizers, did they feel the stress of parents telling them, like, I didn't send you to school to yeah. Yeah, absolutely. stay in an administrative office for 24 exactly, days? Exactly, exactly. Like, I mean, right, like not everyone is on a full-ride scholarship, so people's parents are paying for them to stay in whatever housing they're supposed to be staying in, um, to go to class because class costs money. Um, and so we tried, I don't know if we succeeded, but this is one thing that I'm going to take with me in the next space that I'm organizing with is like trying to do a risk assessment, right? Like we even had like undocumented students yeah. um, and like first-gen students. I mean, there's like lots and lots of dynamics, and I think... Um, I can speak from my own experience that uh, my mom was was very worried that I was biting the hand that was feeding me, um, and only because she loved, of course, because she loves me so much, um, and resist in her own ways. And I think I'm learning about um, that. Right, like our existence is resistance, and what my mom has experienced um, informs what she's telling me. So when she's saying like. I don't know if you should go to the protest because you're black and I don't, you know, like you're going to be targeted. Like, let the white people go. Um, it's, I know it's, it's out of love. Um, and then I have to, of course, take in her wisdom and make decisions for myself. But, yeah, there was a lot of, like, I think there's always going to be, especially right now, a lot of generational tensions. Well, one of the things that I think is so powerful about kind of what you 
how you're talking about this is that it is a form of an education, yeah. right? Yeah. Like you're trying to transform this educational space and you are giving the institution an yeah. education. And so when the sit-in ended, yeah. where did that moment end with the institution for you? Yeah. How did that end? I think, well, on the very... I, when the occupation ended, I think it was still so prevalent in our minds that we couldn't, it didn't really feel like it ended. And there are a lot of students now trying to hold the school accountable to what they said. So, like, we just, the, the coalition just sent an email to the school saying, like, we haven't heard from you since this day. We're starting to do the curriculum with, review with the staff and folks that said they were on board. This is disappointing. Like, get your stuff together. And so what happened to the dean? Yeah, so the dean is on administrative leave, um, which is not resignation but administrative leave pending the investigation so there's an investigation going on the school of course is afraid of being sued for like wrongful termination which I don't understand when there's been several grievances and testimonies put forth Um, but so they're doing an investigation on the dean right now I think it would be embarrassing for the school to be like oh just kidding like we're going to bring her back so the fact they put her on administrative leave it's hopefully a sign that they believe that she she's really not going to be around. Did you talk to her any in this? No. One-on-one? She, she had a lawyer a while ago when she felt that there was, you know, things going on. And so she didn't, I didn't speak to her at all. Um, the day that I gave the speech before the before the sit-in to the 300 students, I, that was the first time she was also on that same panel. And I had a lot of friends who had told me about it, but I never met her. And she kind of wanted to, like... Um, preview what I was going to say or like brainstorm with me and so that's the first time I met her and that was the last time I think I had any conversation with her. And so in light of the end of your senior year at college, what was it like at graduation? Beautiful. Me, somehow, I mean God works in mysterious ways. Somehow me and my friend Fizza were the uh, the last people to walk across the stage at graduation. So of course like prime opportunity um, to show some kind of something, right? Like, we literally just staged, just sit in for 24 days. It's You're going to talk about it. We're going to make you talk. We're going to literally take space again. Um, so as I got my diploma, um, and then my f- friend Fizzle walked behind me, um, we just, like, held hands and did the Black Power symbol for a good, I don't know, maybe 10, 10 seconds or so, and then walked off stage. I mean, not, I mean it could have been a lot more, um, it could have been bigger. We could have. I think when we we like took a moment to like pause and breathe and look at each other, like not rush whatever it is we were gonna do. Um, and I think people at that point were like worried. Of course, the president's like, "Oh my god!" Like I thought this was done. These two again. Um, so we just went the the black power fist um, and then walked off walked off the stage, and it was beautiful. What a beautiful image. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna ask you the last question, yeah. the question that I ask everyone on this podcast, and I think it'll be interesting in light of what you've just um, participated in and what I see you doing in the, in the world. Um, if there was one thing you wish you could have told all your professors in college, yeah. what would it have been? Oh, one thing. That I think this occupation has truly caused me to believe that if we're not fighting for liberation, like if we're not teaching text in a way that's going to liberate people of color and ask white people to deal with their whiteness, then what are we doing in the 21st century? Um, One of my uh, really good white friends who's an anti-racist organizer um, said, if we're not teaching Aristotle and texts on white supremacy intertwined, 
then literally we're not doing it correctly. And so I think there's an opportunity for every teacher to to jump to jump on that bandwagon. Like, please jump on that bandwagon. Otherwise, like, I mean, what are we doing? It's 2016. Like, my liberation is very much connected to your liberation. Um, so, like, let's let's get liberated, please. Um, I think that's what I would tell my teachers. Like, it's yeah, it's the 21st century. If we're not talking about liberation, then you're boring. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was excellent. <laughs> And now it's time for our Ask the Doctor segment, where students from all over the country ask me questions about surviving college. Susie S. from California writes, Dear Dr. C., I'm a non-traditional student, and I'm having trouble making friends and taking my education seriously. So many of my peers seem out of touch. It's hard to relate. How do I cope? So this is a tough one because I know that non-traditional can mean a number of things. So here are some things that I've noticed throughout my career. So the non-traditional student who's a little bit older than the 18 to 22 demographic on so many college campuses often struggles on how to connect with your peers. Your perspective is different. You might have had a series of life experiences that were really formative that your peers have yet to have. And so what I sometimes notice in the classroom is that non-traditional students often overcompensate or disappear. And you don't want to do that. I don't think that your best strategy is to emphasize how much older or how much more mature you are than everyone else around you. No one likes a bragger. And on the other hand, you do have a lot of perspectives to provide. So we don't want you to be silent. One of the things that you could do is to talk to the professor about some of your discomfort about being at school at a non-traditional age. Once the professor knows a little bit about you, he or she can really help you navigate some of the dynamics by being a little bit more attentive to how you fit in. The other thing is sometimes you have to meet people halfway. Often I've noticed that non-traditional students are really willing to offer up their perspectives but not ask those around them the way they see things. Remember, everyone wants to feel like their opinion counts. So before you share your ideas, ask other people what's going on with them. Sometimes being a non-traditional student means being a student parent. And that can be really challenging because so much of the college experience is marketed as this idea of total freedom. And having a child in college, you are unable to do things that other students can do. So the first thing I would say is to seek out resources for student parents. Sometimes your campus women's center or your campus office of student life will have resources for parent students. If they don't, I would form a group. I would have an understanding that as a collective body, you can share resources like childcare and information about local schools, and you can give each other the opportunity to participate in some parts of campus life that can be prohibitive. Another way being a non-traditional student can happen in your life is being younger than everyone else. And that can be really challenging because some students... If they enter college before 18, they're socially restricted, and even though they're intellectually advanced, they might feel a little socially behind. In that case, I would recommend finding other youth opportunities with young people closer to your age that you can do things socially with, and also check in with a dean or an advisor about the experiences that you're having being a little bit younger than everyone else. And the last category of non-traditional student that I've had experience with are student veterans, students who are returning after service in the military. 
While campuses are becoming more aware of the unique needs of student veterans, again, that experience can make you feel a little isolated from most of your peer group. I would also really recommend for that population to connect with other student veterans and to also help people better understand the dynamics of your service to your country and your obligations as a student. The key to all of these problems is to be really clear about your experiences, seek out help and resources, and know that you do have a place on campus, and we're happy that you're there. Thank you for visiting Office Hours. Office Hours, a podcast, is a production of Dr. Marcia Chatlin and Alex Tyson. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers. Visit Office Hours on the web at www.officehoursapodcast.com, on Twitter at Office Hours Pod, on Instagram at Office Hours Podcast, on Facebook at Office Hours a Podcast. Tune in each week on iTunes and Acast. <laughs>